Hello and welcome to the Grand Slam Tennis Podcast. Three-time Davis Cup winner Fred Stolle is back on the pod today and we talk the revamped Davis Cup, Kyrgios's return to the Australia team and Barty's secret weapon. We also chatted about burnout and scheduling and asked whether players actually have it better now. With over 1,200 matches under his belt, Fred certainly knows the rigours of the tour only too well. He opened up to us about his own retirement in 1972 and the importance of friends on tour. But we kicked off with his memories of Harry Hopman's Australia team back in the mid-60s. Well, we had a pretty good squad that stage and uh, all because of Mr Hopman, he got us uh, fitter than any of the other nations that were playing at that stage and uh, it was a challenge round then, most of the things. So the winning or the winner of the, or the holder of the trophy uh, didn't play until the finals and that meant that all the other nations had to do battle and then by the time they did it, Australia was winning a lot of that stage. By the time they got down to Australia, we had... Uh, played our grass court season mostly and uh, even after matches Mr Hopman used to get us out there on the practice court and do whatever we had to do. Some of us ran a lot more than others to get fit. I did mine mostly on the court but by the time the uh, challenging nation got down there we were as fit as we could ever be and uh, we were ready. We'd had uh, five or six weeks on the grass courts and it was pretty tough for the other teams to get up for that, having played on all different surfaces before they got to Australia. How many away fixes did you have? Or was it just always, were you always playing on the grass down under? Always, always on the grass. In those days, three of the four Grand Slams were played on grass. Yeah. And uh, and the Davis Cup, well, the Davis Cup, if you played in in the US, you had the choice, whichever nation you were playing. So if... um, or when Europe won it, and then you played them, you had to go and play on clay. Or when the States, they were there, sometimes they played indoors. Well, 1964, when we won, we played on clay at the Harold T. Clark courts in uh, in Cleveland, but that was done by uh, a promoter there that uh, took it there and uh, uh, made, made money for the USTA the first time that they'd made a lot of money out of Davis Cup, but it had to be played on clay. And that sort of nullified the Americans' chances, I think. And uh, we were fortunate to get through. And that was the match that I think I uh, uh, started off with. And, and, and uh, it's all been uh, written about quite often when I played Dennis Ralston and uh, Don Budge got up in the fifth set. And when I lost my serve and I led two sets to love and Budge said, "Ah, oh, you got him now when Dennis broke in the fifth. And I just, you know, he was like three rows away from me. And... Uh, and he, uh, Mr. Hopman had words for me on the way around and just said, hey, can you handle this? said, Dennis is nervous. So anyhow, the long story short, I won that match and Roy beat McKinley and we took the Davis Cup back to Australia. So that was the highlight and I, I put that above anything else. Well, I didn't win Wimbledon, but I won the US and the French. But uh, winning for your country, winning for your country is always better than anything you do individually, in my opinion. So in so oh right okay so in your mind and in your compatriots' mind was the Davis Cup always a big priority on your ten, tennis calendar? Oh, of course it was for any Australian, mm. you know, to represent your country, and it's uh, I think pretty much still the same today. Although this day and age, you have a few more problems than we had because if uh, if we misbehave, then uh, you just didn't play. Mr. Hopman, mm. uh, you know, he kicked a few people off the team for for doing a lot less, a lot, lot less than uh, the player 
guys are doing today. And then he moved over here to the United States, and uh, then he uh, he mentored players like uh, like McEnroe and uh, Gerolitis, and I coached Reeders for four years when uh, when the hop you know, out, out of Port Washington and. Uh, I got on that well with Hopman then. He didn't like me to start off with, but when he retired, he suggested that uh, or he, he put my name up to take uh, take the job at Port Washington uh, with Mr. Zausner, and I went and interviewed for that job, but I uh, didn't take it. So, um, speaking of kind of Hopman's approach to misbehaviour in the team, um, Australia are facing Colombia today. In fact, they might be in the in the midst of the tie now. Actually, we're speaking at uh, three o'clock British time on Tuesday afternoon, um, and it's Diminor, Millman, Jordan Thompson, John Pierce, and Nick Kyrgios who's been brought back into the fold after being left out for the team's last fixture against Bosnia in February. So Hugh has been speaking very highly of Kyrgios in the build-up to this event, um, kind of hailing him as a team player, describing this meeting they had in Indian Wells in March, where Kyrgios apparently said he was desperate to do whatever uh, to get back into the team. What's your read on the situation? From a tennis perspective, it seems to be the right move, but do you think Hewitt should have taken a harder line with Kyrgios, should have had this kind of Hopman approach to the, uh, the I don't know, the, the team mentality and, uh, um, and trying to keep players in line? No, well, I'm proud of what Leighton's done, actually, because Leighton did take a hard line. Mm. Leighton did take a hard line with both Kyrgios and Tomic, and they didn't play. And it was only because of the meeting that they had. As I said, you know, Mr. Hopman didn't like me to start off with because he thought I was lazy. And once you got there and you had, you know, and I didn't like him either. <laughs> but uh, and, but then once you got to know the man and he got to know me and, and he eventually gave me a shot, I was in three Wimbledon finals before I was given, or two Wimbledon finals, before I was given a chance to play for Australia. Yeah. And I'd been in like five Grand Slam finals and still hadn't played for my country. And I should have, but I was looked over because Mr. Hopman didn't like. But once I got the guarantee and you could prove to him that you could play, then it was tough to get out of the team. And uh, so I think the same thing there. Uh, and then eventually with Mr. Hopman, I gave the eulogy at his funeral. So I got on very, very well with him at the end and he could tell me what I was thinking and I could tell you what he was thinking. And I think it's the same with Leighton and with Nick. But Nick, if you watch the Labor Cup, and I've been privileged to be at both the last two Labor Cups and the Curios has been on the team and he's entertainment. That, uh, that format is absolutely made for Nick Curios. Because you play three matches over four or five days, you get paid handsomely to do it, and at this stage you don't have you're not playing for any points. And he he is one of the best entertainers out there, and he has as much talent as any of them. But when he gets on a tennis court, he loses it. If you're around Nick Kyrgios and he was doing a clinic, or he was talking to people off the court, he is fantastic with the people that he does a clinic for and what he helps and a lot of the work that he does off the court. But put him on the court, and that's where he's judged as far as his tennis is concerned, and he gets away with a lot of stuff that he shouldn't get away with or he should be penalised for. But Leighton's obviously had a chat with him. Nick wants to be a team member, and it's been proven that he is a good team member, and he just has to do things with the team, be part of the team, and not be the individual that wants everything his way. Hmm. So it's kind of that hard-earned loyalty in a way. 
you were talking about well, with Hotman. It well, it's the know, same with Nick, here. Nick's as, Nick is, is as patriotic as, as most, yeah. I think. And uh, and he wants to play for Australia. And he's, you know, he's done some silly things by his own admission. He's done some silly things. And obviously, that's why I say Leighton's had a chat with him. And obviously, Leighton's um, had words with him about, well, obviously, just situations. And uh, he's agreed, so we'll have to see what happens. But as far as the Davis Cup format's concerned, uh, you know, I'm over here in Miami and I'd, I'd like to be watching, but it's, uh, you know, you, you've got all those teams in one week and I can understand some of the thoughts behind it when uh, you know, there's a lot being said about the home and away games and I agree with Leighton there, when you're playing at home, everybody gets behind it. But if you're a small country and you're playing at home, those small countries can't afford to build the facilities that's needed when you've got a team like Australia or Great Britain or the US or Spain now or Argentina when they play against the smaller countries that don't have that much money. So then they have to be subsidised by the ITF and they have to and the ITF over the last few years have been losing sponsorships like it's no you know, like there's no end to it. And fortunately, they have a supposedly a good sponsor right now, and any time will tell whether this format works out. But uh, good luck to them, and uh, everybody's into it. But there's a lot of people that disagree with it. Well, yeah, as you say, Hewitt's not spoken about it in glowing terms, has he? In the build-up, no, um, he hasn't. No, and you won't find too many Australians will. Yeah, one one of the issues he had with it was that it was it's obviously three sets as well, isn't it? And it's three rubbers. Do you think that loses some of the kind of spirit? Oh, no, most definitely. You know, the, the, as I say, we, we won it basically a lot of those times because we were the fittest. Mm. And, you know, you can, you can talk till you're blue in the face today and tell me that the boys today are fitter than our guys, and that's just not true. It's a different, it's a different fitness level. They train differently. They're in the gym now. But there was nobody, and I say nobody, out on that tour today, including Nadal, it would be any fitter than Roy Emerson was. And, and the Aussies, because they worked hard, got out there on the court and they did that. And uh, so all, all that stuff today, it's changed, but everything has changed. And the format, best of five sets, I think that should be played. And all this best of three sets for the Grand Slams, I think that's ridiculous. So, you know, the, the Grand Slams can stand on their own and have stood on their own for decades, and they're the ones that support the game. And uh, the ATP and the WTA both do a super job with their respective tours, but it's the uh, it's the Grand Slams that supply the money. So, I mean, on the flip side, though, to, to this Davis Cup situation, you were saying that the Davis Cup for, for you guys, the Australian team back in the 60s, was the priority. It was the kind of the highest honour, the, the most enjoyable time you had on a tennis court. A lot of tennis players now, as you alluded to, would probably not have that view they they have not prioritized the davis cup in their schedules so i guess no, this well, this week-long event kind of works doesn't it for, for people yeah, well, like that job which is said there's a very good reason for that there's mm. a very good reason for that because it takes and this is where it's got to be that's why they're all the hullabaloo now it's and i agree it has to be it has to be uh there's got to be things happen to it mm. and it's got to be a shorter season the reason why these guys don't want to play the Davis Cup and it's not that important is it takes too long. So if you play a Davis Cup tie and you're serious about it and you're playing with one of the top nations, that's 
three weeks. It's a week to get over it. It's a week to practice for it. It's a week to play it. And then it's a week to go back and play your next tournament after you've had the pressure of playing for your country. Three weeks at this day and age for the top players is, depending on how good you are, is millions of dollars. They're not going to do that. And to go there and play, and I know that the companies now reimburse them and they do this and they give them, they, and that's pretty darn good money to play for your country, but it's not like getting out there and winning tournaments. Mm-hmm. That's the reason that they don't like it. A quick word on Alex Diminor as well, um, because he's in the team. He's risen to A seed in the world after a couple of really fantastic months. He won too high, got the final of Basel and then the final of the next-gen finals in Milan. Um, for those who still haven't seen much of him, what does he bring to this Australia side? What kind of game does he bring to the court? Well, he brings, first of all and foremost, he brings Leighton Hewitt's guts and determination. Mm. That's what he does. And Roy Emerson's and fitness Lee, as well, right? And, and, Lee and, and Roy, no, I don't and Roy Emerson never saw him play for ages. And so, but uh, he, the, the two that found him was Leighton Hewitt and he called up Tony Roach and he said, come and have a look at this guy. Mm. And from that time on, and that's, and that's where he learned his tennis in Spain. So he learned to play on the, on the clay courts which it's, it's a problem in Australia because we still don't have those European-type courts. And so most of the players now, it's a different bounce on the ball in Australia. They're trying to make the Grand Slam so that it's all pretty much the same. But Leighton Hewitt was the one that got the same as Tony Roach and John Newcomb were the ones that got Leighton Hewitt. And they got him and put him in and, and when he was very much a youngster. And uh, that's why Tony Roach is still with Leighton because of the relationship that they've had and I think it's going to be the same with Alex and Leighton because Leighton is the one that gave Demeneur all those opportunities but boy did he run into a buzzsaw with that young Italian kid on in the finals there but I watched uh, I watched that and uh, he didn't have anything to lose he didn't know who he was playing against the Italian he knew the boys but up until that stage but boy he played some terrific tennis and to be so aggressive and, you know, the, the, the Italians now are getting a uh, couple of good players out there that are pretty aggressive and not just playing from the back of the court. Yeah, well, I mean, Berrettini last week at the ATP Finals might not have Berrettini put himself in glory. Well, but... yeah. You know, I've watched most of that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, Sinner, Sinner at the ATP Finals, was uh, the next-gen finals, was enormously impressive for sure. Um, but it'll be exciting to see what, what Diminor can do next year, definitely. Um and speaking well, of other... Diminor, Diminor had a long season. He had a long yeah. season by the time he got that, you know. Unfortunately, the way the sport is today, and it's now become very commercialised. So if you get one of the top players to play in your tournament, you think or you're expecting to win the tournament. Well, mm. that's just not physically possible. And I can tell you that from experience because we played twice as many tournaments. We played 43 weeks of the year. And so... Uh, when they talk about that and but I must say there wasn't anywhere near the depth around and know whether the quality of tennis now is much better that the ball is hit harder and that's because of 10 different things but yeah but uh, as far as was out there for the weeks we played 43 weeks and then uh, I, I played 48 weeks as an amateur 43 weeks as a pro and then you thought well my goodness I've got another five I got five weeks vacation this year this is unbelievable <laughs> so when they start to complain about, and I don't, I, I don't have any, don't begrudge the money or anything with the players. But 
once they start saying they've played too many tournaments when they've played 15 or 20 tournaments, that to me is an absolute joke. But as you say, there's a lot of kind of commercial pressure on these players, isn't there? And as oh, Dimonor goes up the ranks, he's going to have more tournament directors asking him to play, kind of uh, getting in touch with his team, and he's going to have to handle that, isn't he, next year? That's going to be a new battle for him to well, face. He's suddenly a big the fella, name. The fellow that's got to handle it all next year is Pinner. Mm. You know, that, that's the one thing. When, when Dimonor got on the tour... Hey, nobody knew who he was and they had a different type of game and then they start to find out what you're all about, then they they play you differently. And that's what's going to happen to Pinner as well. They're going to figure him out and try to get closer. And he, but he's got a lot of talent. And uh, But, you know, I like the fact I read yesterday or the day before Andy Murray wants to play and it's absolutely terrific to see him back. But he said, I'm going to play the way I want to play so many tournaments, Summit, because he loves to play, not because of, uh, he doesn't need any money, Sir Andy doesn't need any money at all. And uh, But he wants to play, and good for him. Same as Roger Federer, they have now taken it, and you're going to find Nadal, well, Nadal's doing the same thing, pulling out of tournaments and playing the circuit the way they want to play for them physically to be able to stand up and play for another three or four years. And speaking of scheduling, I wanted to ask you about Ash Barty because she's risen to number one in the world despite having only played 15 tournaments this year. Kiki Burton's, who's uh, number four or five in the world, I believe, or a bit lower than that, actually, but one of her rivals has played 28 tournaments. I mean, what, what's been most impressive about Barty, I feel, is the kind of perspective and self-assurance she's had throughout this rise and the kind of, yeah, the perspective to say, right, I need a break at this point. I need to not play this tournament, give myself a rest. That's been enormously impressive, hasn't it? It has. And the, the most impressive thing about Ash Barty is she's come through and you've never heard her in, a, in, in her interviews say, I did this or I did that. It's always we. And that's pretty much a similar way of uh, Roger Federer. It's never I, it's always we. Because with uh, she has a very good team around her that support her, and the Aussies are right behind her, and uh, Tennis Australia as well. And uh, she's just had an unbelievable run. And uh, again, she plays it differently. She can only she's only short, but she can serve. Molly her serves because not not as good as Serena's, but she uh, she can click clip it up there when she wants to, and she volleys very well. And so that makes it a little different. And the slice backhand, but. Over the last couple of months, you can see the, the, the players are starting to get to the slice backhand a little bit more. So she's got to have a little bit more variety on that wing, in my opinion, as she goes through the next season. Because the slice, they're going to wait for their opportunities, the same as somebody like uh, Djokovic does when he plays those sort of players. Wait for the right occasion before he puts the hammer down. That's what I wanted to ask, actually. Um, we've seen so many of the new stars in the women's game struggle with the pressure of success. Do you think Barty's going to have the staying power? Do you think she's going to be able to respond to the fact that players now might be starting to work her out on her backhand side, for example? Well, I, I, that, that, uh, you know, that's a $64,000 question. Mm. I think she is, mm. but I think she's, uh, you know, she's very calm. She speaks very, very well. As I said, she always gives the team credit. 
and what they have to do, they'll go give her advice and she'll take that advice. She's not one that's going to get out there at this stage anyway, hopefully, and say, well, I want this, I want that, I want that. She uh, is very much down to earth. Where she was 12 months ago, she would not even dream of being where she is now. But she's there and she deserves every bit of it. Again, but she can't keep going week after week after week. Yeah, you, you have a bad day. I was always under the philosophy, of, and a lot, of, a lot of players agree with it, a lot of people don't. But if you're playing over two weeks and you're playing a Grand Slam, you have to get through one day when you're not playing well and you're not feeling that great. And you've got to be able to find a way to struggle through that day. And that's been a great belief of mine all the way through. A lot of people don't believe in that. John Newcomb, for one, doesn't believe in that. That you can't have a bad day. But uh, for me, I think you've got to have a bad day and be able to get through it. I know you live in America nowadays, but what's your sense of the excitement Ash Barty is generating in Australia right now? Mate, I'm Australian through and through. I've been over here <laughs> I thought you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. I've been here for 43 years, and I have more uh, Indigenous art. I can't <laughs> say regional art now. It's Indigenous art because you've got to be politically correct. And I've got more stuff in my apartment here that's Australian than I would ever have if I lived in Australia. <laughs> but So I'm very happy when the Aussies do well and very proud of the fact that... Uh, They've done well, and the girls got through the final of the Fed Cup. Mm. And again, in the final of the Fed Cup in Perth, Mladenovic, I watched those matches, and, and, and oh boy, Mladenovic played lights out. She just couldn't believe it. My son Sandon went over there with some juniors and took them to watch it. And, uh, you know, Ash must have feel absolutely gutted that she lost that singles match because that was the turning point. That was it. But she couldn't do much about it. Again, Mladenovic just uh, played lights out. And, and when she hits the ball in and when, he, when she hits them in, they stayed hit. She's, she's got a lot of talent. Mm. And she went through a pretty rough period too. Yeah, yeah. It was last year that she went on a something like a 12-match losing yeah, run. <laughs> yeah, she never, never won a match, never won a tournament match mm. for weeks. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I get, I get from the, the sense we've been speaking about Barty, she'll bounce back from this, won't she? And she'll be she'll be strong oh, for it next year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the same. You know, the loss for her with that is going to be exactly the same as the loss for Federer against Djokovic at Wimbledon when they had match points. She didn't have match points, but they were as good as there. And they uh, and you know that that match hurt Federer, but he got over it. He got over. It. You have to get over it. You're out there for another four or five years. You don't get over it, then you know, you're. Gonna, you're going to have to go home a bit earlier than you thought. Mm. So the ACP finals last week, of course, how much did you get to see of it, Fred? Oh, I got to see a little bit of it. And, uh, you know, I think the surface has a lot to do with it over there. I think that the, uh, the young, it's great to see the younger guys come through eventually. Mm. I watched uh, uh, Federer lose in the semifinals. And Nadal, that surface, I see where he's never won it. And now he, he never will because he, he's getting a bit uh, long in the tooth for those events again. But again, he's got to, and he will, and he's doing that now. He's got to uh, get his schedule all fixed together. But I think that court service is a little too quick for Nadal. And I think it's, you know, Berrettini, there you go, big serve. And, and now the young boys, Zverev won it last year, lost this year. And you got you got team and Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas is a talent. And he's a raw talent, 
And again, those guys now, they're starting to get through. Uh, it's going to be a, a very, very interesting year, 2020, I think. Well, I wanted to ask you about Six Pass, actually, because, of course, it's very everyone last year, but it ended up being a bit of a false dawn. What do you think Six Pass needs to do differently next year to to win a Grand Slam or to really break that big three? Because it's quite easy to forget that he, he had a bit of burnout this year, didn't he? He always had uh, well, two heavier schedules. Well, as I said, you, you know, they're, they're, they're now, they've got to get, they've got to get fitter, the boys. I, you know, they, in a case like Zvera, Mm. Um, I think that you know the play. He, he proved that he, he he did play at the French. I think it might have been two years ago where he played best of five sets. Best of five sets on the clay is pretty hard to do because it's not like best of five sets on the grass courts because it's a different type of game and you've got to have a different fitness level when you're serving and serving and volleying on the grass and that and you're stretching and that. It's different than just striding across the court. Uh, and, and even ground strokes when you're when you're playing on the clay like the French, so um, uh, it, it's going to be a city pass has got it all. He's got to be able to put it together, and uh, he volleys well. I think he's got to volley. Uh, he's got to learn volley, and that for me is the weakness of uh, Zverev's game. I, I watched him play doubles a couple of years ago at the Hopman, not at the uh, Labor Cup, and he couldn't he couldn't volley he couldn't volley very well at all. And I still think those guys don't do enough work on their volleys and because uh, they have so many opportunities to get in and finish points off. And at the moment, if you watch that final uh, between uh, City Pass and, uh, uh, and Team, uh, the, you know, the one-handed backhands were brilliant. But you could, you, you could watch them and go and have a cup of tea and come back and still, <laughs> see, the, and the, still see the same point. Yeah. So, they don't take advantage of when they can have a bit of variety and get to the net and do something. Yeah, my, opinion, my opinion again, and of course, when we come through with those opinions, it's all it's, it's all old hat and it's all old this and you know it's, it's, it's but uh, that's just the way we play the game. You work mm. your way to the net and you finished everything at the net. Nowadays, it's an endurance battle of you know twenty five cross court backhands. No, there's definitely something to be said uh, for for the for the net play point because I mean, this pass that that kind of what seems to be what won him the tiebreak in the final against team. He played a couple of really smart net points, just taking advantage of shorter balls and just rushing the net, um, and they they kind of swung the the match in the end. So yeah, definitely. Um, I wanted to ask you one more thing. Um, Nadal opened up um, in an interview uh, at the tour finals about. He was at a real low point this year after Indian Wells. I think he's spoken about this before. Um, and he was kind of considering whether to basically cut his season short. Um, he, he, was, he said he was suffering from burnout. And he just didn't really have the kind of competitive desire at that moment. I wanted to ask you, what, from your own experiences of, and as you've mentioned uh, to us today, you were playing a lot of tournaments. Did you have any moments like that in your career, and how did you pick yourself up from those kind of moments? Well, that, that's that's one of the basic reasons why, like I quit. I finished playing in nineteen seventy-two, and uh, because I was getting dissatisfied with my um, attitude on court. Not that I got mad, but I'd have a look at the draw, and at that stage, you, you know, 
you'd lost a little bit and you were playing against tougher guys and you'd look at the draw and you'd say, oh, you know, I just got, I'm playing a seed here. I just 6-3, six, 6-3 three, six, three, and that'll be, that'll be right as long as I don't look too bad, that sort of stuff. Well, that never, ever sat well with me. And uh, and so I decided in 1972 that the US Open was going to be my last, was my last Grand Slam singles. And I played the best tennis I played. I got through the quarterfinals. I beat Newcomb, I beat Drysdale, I beat Emerson, and I lost to uh, Astasi in the quarterfinals. And why? Because I didn't have any pressure. I didn't have anything. This was the last tournament. And everything goes by. So there is pressure there, and you do. You cannot go through. That's what I'm saying. You can't go through year in and year out and not have areas where you feel low. And that's the, that the beauty of travelling with the Australians. When you when you got there and you got a bit stale, and you went off, you went off the boil, as we used to say in those days. Then we were too far away. We lived in Australia. You were too far away to cry wolf and go home. So you had to depend on your friends. The, your friends were your were your opponents, your players that you travelled around with to get out in the practice court, and they saw you playing up. They could fix your game up in a matter of moments, or they could help. But you went through you went through periods of depression, and you went through periods of being stale, and you lost three or four weeks in a row. And I think that's becoming more and more a situation like like a Zverev this year. He went off the boil, and he come back towards the end of the year. A couple of matches, a match that he beat Raonic in the uh, the final match of the uh, of the Labor Cup. Uh, it, you know, they, they put it on the line with him. And, uh, and, and he finished up winning it, and that was a big turnaround for him, mentally and physically. Well, more mentally than physically, actually. So when you were on the tour, you you felt like the the Australian kind of contingent that were there they they were always a they well, were always the there to help you out. With our boys, the camaraderie with our boys in those days is something that uh, we all cherish, and I cherish until we go to the grave because. We all travelled as a group. Uh, we all had our differences. You didn't, have, you didn't actually agree with everybody all the time, but that was part of part and parcel of give and take. And you know, you you had certain times when you were feeling a little bit off, and you had to rely on them, and they they also. So everybody got on pretty darn well together, and they still do. Yeah, you wonder if that's that kind of camaraderie has been lost on the tour now. You don't really. I don't know, you don't well, have that same... It's different now, it's different, because in those days, we never had... We knew nothing about nutrition to start off with. knew very little about stretching. And so, and you didn't practice anywhere near as much. But as I say, the game has become... It's a business now, and it's more celebrity and, and money now is what it's all about. And, uh, you know, when you, when, you, when you do that, it's, uh, it, it, it's tough.